Okay, so we're just talking about something that's kind of interesting, and we'll talk about it diff, uh, later. So a separate thing we're working on is uh, you should really look at... Well, first, a gentleman asked me about a quote. I was talking about the light of Amitayus um, in the greater Sukhavati Sutra. Sukhavati being the Western paradise, Amitabha's paradise. Um, and he didn't understand the Chinese uh, metaphors for flood. Um, so that led to me doing a little research, uh, and I came across this National Geographic's episode. And it was a, a recent, fairly recent, probably within the last 10 years or so, a renovation of a Taoist temple in the Forbidden City in Beijing. And what they found in the roof was about 2,000 Tibetan um, sutras, scriptures, Buddhist scriptures, tantric uh, Tibetan Buddhist scriptures. And so now we've been talking about this, right, because... Um, this gentleman asked me the question about the Chinese dialectic. So I give tours and I explain uh, both uh, the history of, of uh, these traditions uh, as well as, uh, you know, Buddhism and, uh, well, I'm going to get to this in a moment, the Bon religion. But what I'm talking about right here is the Tibetan influence on Asia. So never mind that... Uh, Tibet itself, the Empire of Tibet, was never conquered, per se, by the Khans. So we have the Khans, um, who have conquered almost all of Asia, but they were actually being tutored, and uh, their advisors were Tibetan monks. In fact, um, I'm going to get to the reason why I mention this. In fact, the Mongolian script, uh, pardon my... Dragong, I can't remember, but the script at the time was actually created for a Khan by a Tibetan monk. Now, the reason why I mention this is what's super interesting is, so this Chinese temple um, found 2,000 uh, uh, sutras, scriptures, uh, in Tibetan. Again, it could have, could have been uh, Tibetan and Mongolian because the script is near identical, but it's neither here nor there. But nowadays... Pure Land, Chintai, Chan. Um, most of these traditions um, share their scriptures as having been translated from Sanskrit or Chinese. They almost never mention translation from Tibetan. So here we have this Taoist temple. And if you look in the history, there is periods where uh, Buddhism and Taoism were uh, endorsed side by side. There was periods that Taoism took precedence. So there's reasons why they may have been stuffed up there. The suggestion by National Geographics was that the emperor uh, ordered them there so that they'd be above the heads of uh, the Taoist monks. That's abhorrently ridiculous. There is absolutely no way, because one of the tenets that has carried through to the modern-day Chinese uh, practices is you don't treat sutra that way. If you have 2,000 scriptures in, in Tibetan uh, script, you cherish those. You may translate them and put them up there because that'll have the same power. But you certainly do not put an entire library. At the time, a massive library of sutras, of scripture. So, what that led me to think is, did the Chinese, after the Yun um, dynasty, which was set up by the Mongols, which they don't like to talk about, after those dynasties, is it possible that the emperor wasn't really endorsing Buddhism per se, but the real truth was that they were actually scholars using either the Tibetan 
or the Mongolian language. Why do I say that? Well, here is a gentleman who's asking me about the light of um, the Lord Amitayus. Now he is his. Um, this is the uh, the larger Sukhavati Sutra. So it's literally a sutra about Amitabha. Um, Amitabha uh, is venerated by the Tibetans. So it explains why it would have carried through to Chiantai, uh, uh, Pure Land, um, and, and of course into Chan and, and all that. Now when he's asking about the light of Amitayus, that's interesting because Amitabha is the um, Buddha of infinite life. And um, not dissimilar to some of the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, he's able to take multiple forms. His other form, or metaphor, is one of Amitayus, the Buddha of infinite light. So what's interesting is the Tibetan script was actually created, the, the one that we know today and the one that they've used. The Tibetan Empire did not have a written language prior to uh, the arrival of Buddhism. So here's where my theory gets a little more deeper. So currently I'm listening to Padma Samhava's mantra. We just listened to Avilokiteswara's uh, uh, Dharani, the compassion mantra. Um, I find it funny that the, the, the Chinese, like I think it's, I think it's Chentai, they actually list, um, I don't know if it's Padma Samhava, but it is one of the uh, venerated Tibetan scholars. We don't know. I was just talking to the wife. Like Masamhava is known as the Lotus Born. I think he was born from a venerated lake in the Himalayas. I don't know. I think he could have been just like a northern Indian, a Nepali, something like that. that at the time, there was no Nepal, but you know what I mean. That northern uh, tribe of people that just look a little bit different. Um, so he just may have looked kind of like them because again they were very xenophobic and they had to be because it, it was a horrible horrible existence the Tibetan plateau is near impossible to survive on so Buddhism came they loved it so much they actually created a uh, written language so it makes perfect sense that the Chinese would have continued because for me I think the Tibetan anything translated from the Tibetan to English is some of the best um, work for, like, say, Chitta Madra, um, um, it, like, just uh, the middle way, um, mind-only types, Yogacara, Chitta Madra, that's what I mean, right? Mind-only schools, at, there you go, Shunyatra doctrine, right, the emptiness, or I like to consider it the oneness doctrine. Um, it seems to be one of the best uh, sources for translation. So I find it funny that this gentleman who asked about the uh, uh... okay sorry so this is the first time I've actually done a pause during uh, this record all I do is record a voice note um, I got nothing written down so I apologize that it's not really you know um, it tends to meander a little bit but uh, hopefully the points um, resonate in the end so as I was saying I was uh, using this both the question about the um, this uh, um, this uh, well I can't remember the exact words but again it doesn't matter because it was translated from Chinese to English like deluge of water or just this uh, flood of water the light from Amitayus was so 
overwhelming, you know. And and I explained it uh, in the sense like, uh, imagine trying to dam. Oh, I actually haven't mentioned what that comes from. So early history of China, um, there is a history of thousands of years of flooding. Flooding so bad that uh, the people, I mean, suffered. I mean, it destroyed their lives every year. They lost, uh, they lost crops. Until as the history of the myths go, that one gentleman figured out how to manage the flow of the river so that people could live in the valley. It was a fertile valley. In fact, arguably, if you look at the history, this is what's interesting. If you look at the history, it's actually shown on the maps, right? The topographical um, archaeological evidence is there. You can see that for, for thousands of years, that river basin flooded, flooded, flooded horribly to the point that people wouldn't be able to live there year-round. And then at some point they were able to control it. And going forward, that valley was so incredibly fertile. I mean, we know this. Uh, think of, uh, you know, areas that are prehistoric uh, oceans and stuff. They, they tend to, to be very uh, fertile, you know. I, I don't mean to, uh, to digress. But he was asking about the, uh, the light of Amitayus, and it was like a flood of water. So think about trying to stem the flow of a flood of water. So you build a dam out of rock. Back in the day, like even a thousand years ago, you build a dam of rock, even with mortar, and it's not going to stem it. The water can seep through every little crack and crevice, and that's what the metaphor is meant to deliver because this flood uh, metaphor is present in everything. If you look at the Jing, which is the Book of Changes, arguably one of the very first, there's a few uh, ancient uh, texts, but venerated nonstop for thousands of years, uh, it, um, it gave birth to uh, what we consider the, uh, the philosophy of, of, of the Tao, the Tao Te Ching, um, Confucius and, and uh, the thoughts um, flow from this Yi Jing. Big part of this book is this flood myth. Um, and where it flows to is, <laughs> see what I did there? Dao is all about flow. Um, they talk about the golden mean or the central path or <laughs> the middle way. Um, and they talk about no insufficiency, but not excess. So kind of like the Buddhist, he found that asceticism didn't work. He found that living, uh, you know, essentially like a hedonistic type life didn't give you the happiness and the sucker that he was looking for. So there's this Indian, um, and again, based on the histories, I mean, the Indian subcontinent was not, you know, I mean, it, Gautama was their son, but it was the Tibetans. They created a language just to record and preserve uh, these teachings. They changed their entire civilization, and I've spoken of this before, but Nowhere else on this planet has there been um, a country as devout. Uh, they had thousands of monasteries. And remember, in a country that you could barely scrape a living based on the altitude and the soil and the rockiness and oh, it's just, just it goes on and on and on. So it's, it's absolutely amazing what they were able to do. So, to my theory, I think because Buddhism itself 
in the north. In fact, I was uh, picking up some incense. We get uh, some incense from... Uh, we like a very specific type of incense. It's imported from India. We've used it for 30 plus years, right? And we try others, but still my favorite. And I was talking to the gentleman and he kind of, you know, noticed that we buy this stuff. And he said he burns like five packs a day. And I was just, we were talking and, and we were, ended up talking about being Buddhist. He kind of figured we were, right? Because unlikely we'd be, uh, you know, say a Hindu or something, right? Um, and he mentioned uh, this, the philosophy from up north. That's how they see it, right? It came from the up north. So I posit that it didn't really lose... But I think it, it remained in the north and maybe found um, a foothold in, down in Sri Lanka, maybe, as example. Again, I'm generalizing. But as far as the, the, the mainland, the subcontinent itself, India itself moved, right, with the Mughals coming in, uh, the Sikhs actually, um, you know, kind of lost uh, their influence for a while. The Mughal Empire and the, the Muslim influence and how it uh, um, impinged on Buddhism and, and, and arguably before that Hinduism uh, did as well. And then the Mughal in Empire and its, uh, um, its impact on the history of India itself. Because I argue um, it wasn't the, the Buddhism itself uh, that was the problem. See... Buddhism developed from the Vedic tradition. Even the Jainists, uh, a little bit different, but again, it's all the same sort of idea. And the way I boil this down is arguably it just boils down to one realization. So uh, Gautama, Siddhartha, uh, Gautama um, of the Shakya clan, uh, just a northern Indian Nepali, however you want to see it at the time. It was not Nepal. This gentleman, obviously, steeped in the Vedic tradition, so he had already been taught Shamatha. So that is calmness. So he'd been taught Dhyana, Jhana. He'd been taught meditation, focus, pranayama, so breathing techniques. So he'd actually been taught all of this, been using it. He found it wanting. Why did he want her? He wanted with aesthetics. Why did the aesthetics find the Hinduism wanting? So Buddhism developed because... Uh, he felt that um, insight or awareness, Ishvara in Hindu uh, thought, um, moksha, uh, the enlightenment we seek, uh, is arguably, um, well, it's two sides of a coin, if I can use that as an example. So the Hindus were using shamatha alone uh, and sometimes veneration, but we'll get into what I mean by that. But the, uh, the Buddha, arguably, or one of the first that began to teach this process, just said that it's, yes, use Shamatha, but add this additional little piece called Vipassana. Vipassana is insight meditation. So what is that? It's like when they ask you to look at the nature of uh, our dissatisfaction uh, or our ego, our desires, right? The nature of the self. And what do you do? You can't just sit calmly and look. No, that's what the insight is. So, two sides of a coin. Why? Calmness doesn't always work because if you need to figure out something, if you need to understand simply on shunyata, if you need to understand cause and effect and, you know, um, 
that, that were simply just aggregates. You have to think about this. So, synonym for that is insight. That's really what it is. Vipassana is just like focus and attention. And the two sides of the coin are not two separate meditations like we see commonly today. They're one. You need to remain calm, but you want to be focused and insightful. Right? But not too much. Again, there's that golden mean. Not insufficiency, but not hedonism. So that's why these ascetics roamed India, right? The Vedic tradition was missing something. So what really happened was after all the Mughal and the troubles and, you know, they lived uh, together prior to that, Buddhism and, and uh, Hinduism, Vedic tradition, uh, there was no issues. They shared far more than they uh, disagreed on. But after the Mughal Empire came in and really caused a lot of trouble for them and looking back on it historically they're looking back and hey since they're done a time we were Upanishad, Upanishads uh, you know the Gita the great song right so they based it on that not because of any sort of work but because they just needed to you know find their roots so I argue that Buddhism itself it's not like it was missing or it was uh, disliked. It was simply um, the, the Indian people were actually uh, invaded in a sense. And uh, Hinduism and Buddhism itself, anything traditionally Indian, was kind of second-class citizen, as it were. So once the Mughal Empire had waned, uh, it made sense that the Indians would, uh, would uh, venerate some of their oldest traditions. Right. So here we are now in the north, maybe in the south, uh, maybe where the Mughals didn't have as much of an influence, right? Because the Tibetans were quite, uh, quite a warring people, supposedly, at the time. So there's this incredible... Um, oh, hold on. Okay, so uh, after the intermission, uh, we've got back up to speed here. So I was just, 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 uh, I was just discussing... Um, my thoughts that Buddhism itself was actually more of a victim of uh, invasion and then just uh, um, people looking to uh, have a renaissance of their own uh, culture, something that predates, say, an invader, an invading culture. That's a whole different uh, story that we can probably talk about that... Uh, uh, leads into the next thing I'm going to talk about, which is the Bon religion, uh, which they originally uh, espouse uh, the source to be um, a land called Tazig, which they've identified as Persia, or possibly. So same as uh, Sanskrit, which is what we're talking about here. The Indians were looking to embrace, maybe not the, the Buddhism, uh, because it wasn't as old or as... Um, as uh, like it didn't last as long, right? Uh, because you know, like I said, the invasions. So I mean, the Vedic tradition was thousands of years before that, and it also influenced everything that came after. So you can understand why they would uh, go back and venerate that. So again, not that uh, Buddhism was uh, chosen uh, over some in the north. It never ceased to be venerated. Tibet, as I said, was just this incredible uh, culture of Buddhism. They had developed a language based uh, solely on wanting to record and, and share 
this teaching. This teaching never ceased. So this is what I was talking about. So going from that Taoist temple in Beijing, so it's absolutely the other side of the continent. It's as far um, <clears throat> east as you can go before you go and sail your way to Japan. <clears throat> so they found all these Tibetan sutras. So I argue they had been learning, just like the Mongolians, from the Tibetan scholars, who were the source, the fountainhead of this knowledge for centuries and continued to develop this tradition that can um, trace its, uh, of course, go back to Buddha, but directly this, um, like I said, Chittamadran, uh, Yogacaran tradition, this tantric yogin, um, tantric Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition flowed from a Nalanda tradition, specifically by a few individuals. And as I was saying earlier, the individual that is venerated, uh, even the Chinese venerate um, some individuals that could have been Tibetan or, you know, Bhutanese, Nepali, that northern area, Indian, um, Tibetan, uh, Mongolian. At this time, a lot of these um, uh, labels that we apply now likely didn't apply. So I argue that China likely uh, studied Buddhism <clears throat> from Tibetans and then had their own scholars, but likely in Tibetan who taught it, maybe in Chinese, but I argue the scholarship itself was probably in Tibetan. That's why these uh, sutras were sitting in uh, the Taoist temple. Um, because later, as a rejection to uh, the Mongolian dynasty, uh, the Chinese did exactly the same thing that the Indians did. And they went back in their history and they started to venerate, you know, Taoism and Confucianism and the Jing and their old ways. Um, because again, they had been invaded by a foreign culture. Okay? Now there's another aspect to this you can look at. So again, this wonderful tradition of the Tibetan uh, Buddhism and again, they developed this language uh, well, the written language specifically to uh, preserve these teachings and these... Uh, I mean, as I said, they had thousands of monasteries and they had their own PhD in Buddhism. And so when the Buddhism came in to Tibet, there was a religion that pre-existed. It was called the Bon religion. It was uh, very animalistic. And what's interesting, as I said earlier, uh, scholars think that it possibly originally traced its roots back to Persia. Now this is what I find funny, is uh, it's still a subject of debate, its relationship with Tibetan Buddhism. Now, yes, definitely interspersed with Buddhism, because when uh, the Tibetan Buddhism came, uh, sorry, when Buddhism came to Tibet, arguably whoever might have brought it, um, being logicians and um, um, science-based, they never changed, and you can look at some of the teachings, they never changed the science-based or the, you know, the, the being based in logic. And um, uh, arguably, though, they did <coughs> become, I think, much more tantric because of the culture, the Bon tradition that was there. So this is something that I was talking about, just like I was talking about earlier about the gentleman that didn't understand um, the mythology of uh, the flood in, in China. 
and how it relates to arguably the teachings were maybe convoluted when they rushed to translate from the Tibetan, again, a language designed to record and disseminate the Dharma, the, the uh, Buddhist teachings. This is what it was designed for. So you go and translate it into a language, and keep in mind, um, by this time, be it 200 AD, 300 AD, 700 AD, by this time, the ancient language that we would classify as Chinese, it was, it's really uh, um, ideographs, I guess is what you'd call them. They had so many contextual meanings that a lot of that was lost. So here we have the Chinese language, which, um, and I'll give one example. Uh, jhana, jhana, the states of meditation and focus, uh, just got translated to one word. Um, and then that, uh, same when it comes to, say, emptiness, right? Translated to one word, but it was translated as emptiness, not the idea of shunyata. And, and, and this was the beauty of Sanskrit. This is the beauty of Pali and Tibetan. All three of those languages, arguably, were designed for scholarship. Sanskrit was designed for Vedic scholarship, arguably, came possibly from the north. Pali was specifically designed to um, coalesce all of the regional languages in India into one so that, uh, once again, the Dharma could be recorded. And Tibet, as I said earlier, 100% created their written language for uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So, what do I mean by this? Well, as I said, it's pretty simple. You have two classes of people when it comes to the Bon religion. You have some people who have been taught recently and think that, yeah, Bon religion's always been Buddhist. Or you have, say, old fellers like me who predate that thought and have actually done their own research and saw that the original Bon religion was much, much different. Um, and then it's just kind of blended together into this new entity. Not hard to research. Um, but that same confusion uh, comes when you, uh, say, do the translations by culture. So um, I know some people that are turned off by the Tibetan tantric practices. I just ignore that and see it for what it is. The Tibetan people had this very, uh, I can't remember what they call it, like an animalistic type based religion, you know. Um, like uh, the Native American type religion, I guess you could compare it to. So, kind of like they did in, in China. So, when they're talking about that example that I gave of the flood. In Tibet, not a lot of floods, right? I mean, they're in the mountains. Water is a premium, at least, you know, liquid water. Uh, you know, everything's at a premium. So, this flood metaphor don't mean a lot but as i said in china where we can see that uh, even uh, geographical archaeology shows us that centuries centuries the uh, the uh, the river valleys were flooding but then all of a sudden they they diverted that and like i said with the golden mean not too much not too little 
they were able to find the happy medium to control the river so they could live around it. But the side benefit for them was it made them explode as a civilization because kind of like the Nile River in Egypt, um, that valley was so fertile that it developed this great civilization. And, you know, arguably every dynasty was a little bit different. But once again, I want to argue that even before all this, the scholars to these great civilizations were the Tibetans. And before that, some Indian scholars. So I should argue that we should just ignore these labels and say these human beings in our history are one history. Because just like Buddhism, show me yourself or your mind. You can't. You're just an aggregate of parts. Right? You can't point to what makes you, you. Same as, in this case, the Chinese. They love to consider themselves Han. Han Chinese is actually two. The Han dynasty is actually two dynasties, uh, followed by an incredibly, you know, what do you call it? Uh, um, there was some upheaval for a while. Yeah, so it's, it's actually quite funny to see that the entirety of uh, what's now China, it's, it's great, you can see these different maps of historical China. Um, it was very different depending on uh, the period and actually uh, China was made up of different tribes and different ethnicities. Um, so it's funny that they would uh, consider themselves Han. And this is no different than the the Indians who uh, very much identify themselves as a, you know, a Vedic, a Hindu type uh, culture. But, I mean, there were so many other traditions even back in uh, the historical days. It's about what survives, right? Same as I was saying to the wife. <clears throat> the Nalanda tradition was simply one that came out of the Mahayana tradition, which is simply one that came out of the Theravadan tradition, which is simply the one that survived. Um, there was dozens of different sects of uh, what we now call Buddhism back at the time. And then there was the Jainists and uh, there was different Hindus. Um, I mean, there's Advaita Vedanta, um, arguably uh, the Pantanjali Sutras, though not of the same period, but very close, was uh, almost identical in its, uh, in its uh, belief that everything uh, boils down to awareness, as does the Bharathadul. Again, I go back to the Tibetan. So the Bharathadul predates any of these texts uh, in China. Um, and there is no, I mean, that might be the secret right there, is that Tibet was never invaded until 1959. And the tragedy of it is, they were invaded by the country that they tutored and helped along to become one of the greatest civilizations in history. But they were their tutors, their mathematicians, their scientists, their scholars, their psychologists, their teachers, their professors, their geshes, uh, their, their, the teachings, right? So maybe that's why this scholarship, this beauty, as I said, um, scholarship translated from the Tibetan into the English, I find to be some of the best. Because as I said earlier, when Sanskrit is written, arguably for scholars, not specifically for Tibetan, Pali 100% written 
designed uh, to record uh, these teachings. Tibetan, once again, 100% designed to record the teachings of Buddhism. It's getting kind of funny, isn't it? Then the Khan actually asked for a written language, and in no small part because of his interest in the Dharma, and he even developed his own sect. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a Mongolian Dalai Lama. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Well, it's not a Dalai Lama, but it, there's a Mongolian Lama. Pardon me. It was just a Dalai Lama's birthday, so I have him at hand, I guess, uh, at top of uh, front of mind, whatever the expression is. <clears throat> so, uh, I've been trying to figure out, because uh, like I told uh, my wife, I actually turned away from the Chinese tradition, because I went, arguably, I think, the best, uh, the proper way, from India, uh, you know, uh, Mahayanan, uh, the Nalanda tradition, and then I found some of the... Um, uh, the thinkers that I liked, which led to Tantric uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so when I went a little further and started looking at some of the Chinese Buddhism, I actually saw the same thing that Bodhidharma saw when he went into China, uh, returned to China after he'd brought the Dharma uh, initially. And he saw that the monks had actually got uh, so distracted and enamored and even fixated on uh, ritual and chant and robes um, that he taught him taught them a new tradition that has since become known as Zen or Chan. Uh, it was simply based on awareness and uh, focus and using the mind as a tool. That's what I actually say. I call it mind as a paya. Uh, almost anything is a tool, obviously, but our greatest tool is the mind because it's the mind that uh, is what uh, not only what we connect with the universe, but it's also the source of our liberation from the same uh, uh, prison. So, I argue that the real confusion, and I found it when I started re reading, say, for example, the, the Tao Te Ching, I had already read a lot of uh, Tibetan and other uh, Buddhist, um, as well as a number of other philosophers. But I found that the, um, any of the Chinese traditions to be wanting. Now, of course, a lot of people will say, yeah, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of the, the translations were almost non-existent and very poor. I mean, I'll agree with that. They've done a lot better since, and I'll agree with that as well. There's a number of scholars that do an excellent job. In fact, I'll read Red Pine all day because he'll not only translate the text, new, uh, new translation, but he'll tell you what some of the other translators uh, would translate. And sometimes he'll even intersperse um, some of his Taoist uh, understandings and then his cultural uh, understandings, um, allowing you to understand better the uh, the time, the culture. I mean, everything's a product of its time and its culture, right? I, I had someone mention that they found it interesting that someone was able to modernize a parable from, uh, from an old religion. Well, obviously. I mean, 2,000 years ago, it was written for people 2,000 years ago. But if we all agree that these truths are universal to humankind... As I was saying earlier, we should just ignore Chinese, Tibetan, Canadian, uh, Indian, American, all of these labels because when you boil it down, just like show me yourself, 
Just like the Chinese, show me what makes you Chinese. Show me what makes you Tibetan. Oh, well, I live here in these mountains. Well, can I take somebody from New York and put them in the Tibetan mountains? Does that immediately make them Tibetan? No. So, you know, it is this collection of aggregates that you can't put your finger on any one, right? So immediately Tibet is changed itself how many times? Not because of invaders, so you can't blame an invader. It literally embraced this teaching and changed their entire culture and way of life because of it, right? So what could you point to that is specifically Tibetan then? Right? Because here's the example is the bond. I mean, it is really funny that we have modern day scholars who have no idea that the bond religion itself predates Buddhism and had no connections directly. Um, as I said, if it can trace its root to Persia and if we can trace uh, Vedic thought, which is very similar back to the same region, then yes, they have a similar um, route. But that wouldn't be Buddhist. But that's separate from the fact that uh, Bon has uh, remained because Tibetan Buddhism is incredibly uh, tolerant. Um, and it's just developed since. I mean, you can't argue truths that work. I mean, if you look at the differences between the two, I mean, they seem to have taken what worked, kept what was tradition and made them feel good and all that jazz. So that's what I was getting at here. It seems this kind of explains everything that's going on. Um, when I read some Chinese, uh, but more particularly when I interact with um, some of these traditions that have maybe translated uh, the teachings one too many times and they're missing uh, the point. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I know we've meandered around a few times and this is the first time I've done a podcast in a number of segments. I'm hoping this might make it work out better, but honestly, with all the stuff that's going on, it's just been a little bit of a, a jump back and forth. But hey, um, my podcast is just me sharing a bunch of thoughts. So if you enjoy listening to me yammer on about uh, uh, stuff that happened two and 3,000 years ago, I'm your man. So, that being said... Have a wonderful weekend.